BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. We've got a lot to talk about today. I want to start out with uh, Donald Trump's confession and how that shows that we need to, A, get rid of the Electoral College, but B, and maybe I've got the order of these backwards, throw his ass in jail. (laughs) According to the framers of the Constitution themselves, the whole reason for the Electoral College was to prevent a foreign power from placing their stooge in the White House. How's that worked out? Right. Uh, Also, I want to get into how Trump's candidates are already answering Trump's call for violence. Ben Jealous of uh, People for the American Way will be with us uh, on how America moves forward to a more diverse society. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I do have a couple topics I want to drill down into a little bit here. My rant over at Hartman Report, as the GOP faction drowns deeper in racism and sexism, America is sinking. We'll get to that in a minute. And Tucker Carlson doubling down on racism and misogyny, saying that a black female Supreme Court justice doesn't look like real America. Oh, really? And also, Andrea Mazzarino is going to be with us. Is Trump's violent extremism at the Department of Homeland Security being continued by Trump holdovers? This is spooky stuff. But I want to start out with my piece titled, Trump's Confessions Show Why We Must Abolish the Electoral College and Throw Him in Jail. You know, he had his rally on Saturday and then uh, on Sunday morning, he's not tweeting because he's barred from Twitter, but proclaiming in the various media still available to him that if it wasn't legal for Mike Pence to overturn the election, And I mean, he literally is using this language. If it wasn't legal for Mike Pence to overturn the election, then why are the Democrats trying to, and and crazy Susan Collins, to quote Donald Trump, why are they trying to pass a law to make it illegal? And yes, there is a big discussion right now about reforming the so-called, or not so-called, reforming the Electoral Count Act of 1887, you know, which, which, by the way, makes it clear that the vice president is not choosing the electors and is not choosing the next president. The vice president merely opens the envelopes. But sometimes you've just got to say things so clearly that even, you know, narcissist wannabe tyrants like Trump can get it. The Electoral College was not put in place so that some vice president in the future could just randomly choose who was going to be president. I mean, it was literally never even a consideration. And I think it's important, uh, particularly as we're seeing at all levels of government, we see Republicans trying to corrupt the small d democratic process, trying to corrupt our, our form of government here in the United States. And the Electoral College has not protected us from getting a president beholden to or working on behalf of foreign powers. We had that, obviously, with Donald Trump. So let's just, you know, like recap this very quickly. I mean, the Electoral College, according to the framers of the Constitution themselves, was put into place to prevent a foreign power from putting their stooge in the White House, which is exactly what has happened with Donald Trump. And, and, you know, I mean, back, what was it, in the 70s, the Manchurian candidate came out, maybe the 60s, that old movie about, 
you know, as I recall, it was the Soviet Union or China, whoever it was. It's been it's been a lot of years. Yeah, Soviet Union, I think, you know, gets their guy planted in the American political system and they work him way, him, you know, him up through the system to the point where they can put him on the on the on the in the White House. And and, uh, you know, we saw this movie back in the day and thought, well, that's quaint, <laughs> but it ain't going to happen here. I mean, there's no chance of that happening here. Right. Right. Well, this was actually why the Electoral College was created, it was to prevent exactly this from happening. The biggest question that the people in the founding generation dealt with was, is this prospective elected official? And, and by the way, this was an issue not just with the White House, not just with the presidency, but all the way down to mayors of towns. Is this person a, an agent of a foreign government? I mean, keep in mind, in 1775, the year that the revolution unofficially started, everybody in America, I mean, only, only about a third of Americans were in favor of having a revolution to begin with. And uh, about a third of Americans were opposed to having a revolution, and about a third of Americans were like, eh, you know, just, I just want to get on with my life, kind of like today. Not with regard to the revolution, but you get what I'm saying. But uh, this was a very real thing. Ben Franklin, for example, was rumored to be an agent for British intelligence. There was this persistent rumor that Ben Franklin, who you know, was not running for, for president, but, but that he was a spy for the British. It turns out he actually had spied for the British against the French when he was living in Paris. Thomas Jefferson was living in France when the Constitution was being written, and his political enemies were whispering that you know, he, had, he was more loyal to the French than he was to the Americans. Um, in response to that, he, he wrote a long letter protesting to his old friend Elbridge Jerry, the, the, you know, the inventor of gerrymanders. He said, the first object of my heart is my own country. In that is embarked my family, my fortune, and my own existence. John Adams, the second president of the United States, uh, who famously, back in, on March 5th, 1770, a bunch of British soldiers shot uh, some Americans, the first, uh, Crispus Atticus, you know, a black guy, was the first guy killed in, in the American Revolution, if you date it to that time. And uh, John Adams defended those soldiers, uh, not because they killed a black guy, but because he felt the, the rule of law was important. And Britain was running America at that time. This was 1770. This was six years before the Declaration of Independence. As a result of that, for I, at, at least half of the rest of his life, there were all these rumors that John Adams had more loyalty to the Brits than he did to America, that he was not a loyal American. And, uh, you know, when he blew up the XYZ affair and nearly went to war with France, I mean, people just went nuts. And that's when he, that's when he came forward with his uh, the Alien Sedition Act, because he was concerned about public opinion about him. And so he started throwing people in jail who were saying maybe he likes the British more than Americans. And so it fell to a fatherless man from Bermuda to explain to Americans that the main purpose of the Electoral College was to make sure that no agent of a foreign government would ever become president. He said the most deadly adversaries of America would probably, quote, make their approaches to seizing control of the USA. This is from Federalist 68, by the way. Uh, to, would probably make their approaches to seizing control of the USA for more than one quarter, chiefly from the desire on foreign powers to gain an improper ascendant in our councils. In other words, you know, foreign governments are going to try and put their stooges in our political offices. And he said, with the, with the Electoral College, we have, quote, guarded against all danger of this sort with the most provident and judicious attention. He said, under this system, the choice of president would not, quote, depend on any pre-existing bodies of men who might be tampered with beforehand to prostitute their votes. In other words, Congress was not going to select the president. The vice president was not going to select the president. They were going to get these random citizens who had no loyalty to anybody whatsoever. This is the Electoral College. The Constitution says that members of the Electoral College literally cannot be members of Congress. This, Hamilton said, would eliminate any sinister bias. The process of election by the Electoral College affords a moral certainty, Hamilton wrote in Federalist 68, that the office of president will never fall to the lot of any man who is not 
in an, in an eminent degree endowed with the requisite qualifications. This is the real killer from Federalist uh, 68, where he just lays this out. He said, talents for low intrigue and the little arts of popularity may alone suffice to elevate a man to the first honors in a single state. In other words, you know, to be elected governor. But it will require other talents and a different kind of merit to establish him in the esteem and confidence of the, of the men of the Electoral College who would be selecting him as president for the entire union. <laughs> Hamilton was so certain this was just going to solve all the problems. He said, it will not be too strong to say that there will be a constant probability of seeing the station, president, filled by characters preeminent for ability and virtue. Well, it hasn't always worked out that way. <laughs> I, I give you Andrew Jackson. I give you Donald Trump. Hamilton never envisioned a day when a man so entangled in financial affairs with foreign governments as is Donald Trump could even be seriously considered. Because in his mind, the whole point of the electors was that they would go out and investigate the candidates. They would figure out what was going on. And uh, keep in mind, this was a time when, you know, it, it took three days to travel from Georgia to New York, and New York was the seat of government at the time. So the, the point was, you know, the electors will check out this candidate and make sure he's not actually a spy. So here we now have Donald Trump, who lost the popular vote by, by, by three million. We have George W. Bush, who lost the popular vote by 500,000. Actually, Donald Trump uh, lost the first popular vote by three million. He lost the second popular vote by seven million and were rejected by a majority of Americans. And yet, they served as president, George W. Bush and Donald Trump. And now we've got Donald Trump coming forward and saying, yes, our intention was to overthrow the election. It's what we were all about. It's what we were trying to do. It's what we were planning. It's what we're going to do. It's, it's what we'll do again if we get a chance. I mean, this, he, he has just come right out and said it. Why is this guy not in jail? Uh, you know, Merrick Garland, do your job. This is not what the Constitution contemplates. This is not what our law contemplates. This is, this is, I don't know how to say it beyond this is as bad as it gets, but this is as bad as it gets. And we've got to, we got to figure out a way to do something about this. I mean, you know, the Electoral College, obviously that would take a constitutional amendment. There is the, the, uh, uh, the movement, uh, you know, to have states uh, basically replace the Electoral College by pledging their electors to whoever wins the majority vote. But that's, that's a ways down the road. And over the short term, it seems like the starting point would be to take Donald Trump off the stage by putting his butt in jail. So Donald Trump has not only confessed that he wants to overturn the election, this is, this is actually the exact quote from his statement. He said, if the, if, if the vice president, parenthesis, Mike Pence, close parenthesis, had, quote, absolutely no right, end quote, to change the presidential election results in the Senate, despite fraud and many other irregularities, how come the Democrats and rhino Republicans like wacky Susan Collins are desperately trying to pass legislation that will not allow the vice president to change the results of the election? Actually, what they are saying, Trump wrote this weekend, is that Mike Pence did have the right to change the outcome, and they now want to take that right away. Unfortunately, he didn't exercise that power. He could have overturned the election, exclamation mark. Now, George Conway comes out and says, quote, the answer is the 12th Amendment and the Electoral Count Act of 1887 already make it entirely clear that the vice president merely opens the envelopes. But sometimes we want to make laws even clearer so that even semi-literal psychopaths have a chance at understanding them. Meanwhile, Trump's call to arms has, has become literally a call to arms. We've got Republicans in Michigan who are, I mean, th this, is, this is just beyond the pale. Uh, uh, Ryan Kelly is a candidate for governor of Michigan. He's a Republican. He was in Washington, D.C. for January 6th. He told an audience at a Livingston County meet and greet 
uh, to tamper with the vote by unplugging voting machines if, quote, you see something like you don't like happening. Right. Like what? Black people voting? Candidate, Republican candidate Mike Detmer went even farther. He said, quote, the Second Amendment isn't there for hunting rights. It's not there for self-defense. The American people need to be prepared to lock and load. So if you ask, what can we do? Show up armed. Right. Go to the polling places. And if you see anything you don't like, like, you know, black people voting or Hispanic people voting or people who look like they may be old hippies voting or somebody who looks like they might be college educated voted voting or somebody who looks like they might be a union member voting or maybe a woman voting. If you see any of that who's not wearing a Trump hat, if you see any of those things happening, you know, just whip out your gun. Is that seriously? The attorney general, Dana Nessel, the, the attorney general for Michigan, says the Republican Party, she asked, is the Republican Party, will they condemn the encouragement of felonious acts by its candidates for office? And this, this one candidate, Detmer, who I just quoted, he said, uh, he said, the attorney general and the libs are upset with him. Right. Back with more of the news of the day and your calls in just a moment. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com Hartman. That's netsuite.com Hartman. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. My piece is titled, As the GOP Drowns Deeper in Factional Racism and Sexism, America is Sinking Too. Now, faction and factional are words that are not much used these days. They, they kind of track back to the 18th century. Although I think most people have at least think they know what they mean. James Madison was the father of our Constitution. He literally kind of kept track of all the debates at Constitution Hall and, uh, you know, well, they, they call him the father of the Constitution. And he identified a faction essentially as a special interest group who is willing to harm both other people and its country and their country just to acquire some gain. And as Madison warned us, factions destroy democracies. And here's how it's playing out right now. You've got this Trump-inspired faction. I mean, they've been there for a long time, the, the racists and misogynists. The, essentially, let's call them the male white supremacists. They've, you know, they've been in, in the Republican Party. There's some of them in the Democratic Party. They've been around for a long, long time. But now they have, as a faction, essentially taken over the Republican Party. Joy Reid laid this out in painful detail with clips from Republicans like Marsha Blackburn and Josh Hawley and Kevin McCarthy, all quoting the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. saying, uh, you know, we should, you know, he hoped that someday people would not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Right. This is their mantra. And they use it to basically say, how dare you consider race for things like affirmative action or hiring? or gender for that matter. 
it's, it's like turning it on its head. And, well, of course, something, you know, Republicans are very, very good at doing. This goes back to their embrace of racism as a political strategy with Nixon's Southern strategy. This, this was not the GOP, by and large, of Dwight Eisenhower, uh, the president, uh, the first Republican president of my lifetime. This is very much the GOP, or at least it was the fringes of the GOP, of Barry Goldwater and Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan and George Herbert Walker Bush, although George Herbert Walker Bush shouted out to them with his Willie Horton ads. George W. Bush, not so much other than Muslim bashing, a <laughs> surprise. But with Donald Trump, it just became front and center. And this is when this faction seized complete control or near complete control of the Republican Party. And, I, you know, it, 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 I, and, and it's not... It's not like they're not building on something. I mean, you had John Roberts, the, you know, the, the former lawyer for the, for the uh, uh, cha U.S. Chamber of Commerce, uh, now as Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court in Shelby County v. Holder and back in 2013, writing that basically, hey, there's no more racism in America. We have a black president. We can do away with these laws. And boom, you know, immediately, a whole bunch of states just started purging black people from their voting rolls like there was no tomorrow. And it's not like Republicans, as they're yelling about affirmative action, it's not like they're actually opposed to affirmative action. I mean, Ronald Reagan promised to put a woman, a white woman, on the Supreme Court, and he did with Sandra Day O'Connor. Donald Trump said the same thing. He said, you know, we've, it'll be a woman, a very talented, very brilliant woman. Uh, told that to a rally in, in North Carolina after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. But like I said, those were white women. And while misogyny is pretty high up there in the value hierarchy in the, in the Republican Party. Race is at the top. I mean, just look at who they recruit. Of the 56 black members of the House of Representatives right now, two are Republicans. The only black Republican senator is Tim Scott, and he was appointed by another GOP outlier, an Indian-American Republican governor, Nikki Haley. So now we've got Tucker Carlson going off on this. The uh, multimillionaire Swanson Frozen Foods fortune heir says, hey, as long as we're giving up the carving up the spoils like carrot cake, where's my slice? Right. Or uh, in another in another moment, he said, uh, it seems normal now to reduce human beings to their race. But imagine if this was happening to you. How would you feel? Right. Tommy Lauren on Fox News uh, whines, we know what Joe Biden does best is placate to the radical element and the radical progressive base of his party that he believes is the majority. Right, nominating a black woman, that's the radical base of the party. All black women are radical progressives, didn't you know that? Because of the color of their skin, got it, Tucker, or Tommy in this case. And then Nikki Haley saying, you know, uh, Biden should choose a Supreme Court nominee without a race or gender litmus test. And then she goes on to say that she used a race, a race litmus test uh, rather paternalistically. She said that, uh, you know, she did that when she picked Tim Scott as senator of South Carolina. That would be the Tim Scott who couldn't even muster a vote for rebuilding America or voting rights. You know, here's a simple reality. All five of the black women who are, uh, whose names are in the press right now, presumably as a result of leaks out of the administration, as front runners to, uh, you know, to replace uh, Justice Breyer, all five of them are more qualified academically and are more qualified experientially than any of the three nominees that Donald Trump put on the, uh, the, the three justices that Donald Trump put on the court. Now, that shouldn't be surprising. Black people, particularly black women, are always held by, or by white society in particular, but society in general to higher standards than our white women. And white women are held to higher standards than white men. I mean, it's just, this is, this is the result, the legacy of racism and sexism. So I remind you about faction. Dan Sisson and I wrote a book about this called The American Revolution of 1800. Dan Sisson wrote the book. I helped edit it and wrote a forward to it. Um, and in it, you know, we, we quote extensively from James Madison about this. You see, he wrote, now this is in Federalist Number 10. He wrote, by a faction, I understand a number of citizens, whether amounting to a majority or minority of the whole, 
who are united and actuated by some common, common impulse of passion or of interest adverse, that's harmful, to the rights of other citizens or to the permanent and aggregate interests of the community. He goes on to say, men of factious tempers, in other words, people who are creating factions, of local prejudices or of sinister designs may by intrigue, by corruption, or by other means first attain the suffrages, in other words, first get power, and then betray the interests of the people. So what I'm saying here is that the Republican Party has, you know, there was this faction, this white racist, misogynist, uh, white supremacist faction within the Republican Party. It was used, that faction was, uh, you know, uh, used to get a few extra votes by Nixon and by basically every Republican since then. But with Trump, he said, hey, that faction, those marginalized people, the people, you know, the, the Klan, we're going to bring them fully, and the Nazis, we're going to bring them fully into the party. And they now constitute the base of the Republican Party, and they now drive the Republican Party, which raises a really interesting question. Now that a faction has taken over a political party, the last time we saw this happen, you know, it was the Democratic Party. It was the 1850s and, you know, the Democratic Party in the South. So this, this is the second time this has happened in American history. Now that a faction has taken over the Republican Party, can they continue to hold power? There are Republicans who are pushing back, you know, the Cheneys and Kinzingers of the world who are saying, hey, wait a minute. No, our, part, our party should not be about racism. It should not be about misogyny. And it, and it should be embracing democracy. But the rest of the elected Republicans, you have Josh Hawley now piling in, piling on, you know, with criticism of Joe Biden, wanting to pick a black woman for the Supreme Court. How dare he? It's insane. But what do you think? Can they hold on to the power of the party in 2022? And if so, what happens to the old Republican Party? Because the Democratic Party is becoming pretty damn progressive. Eugene in Los Angeles. Hey, Eugene, thanks for listening to KPFK. What's up? You're welcome, Tom. Well, I just wanted to say that, you know, retiring Justice Breyer, he was a Clinton nominee. In other words, he was a Democrat nominee, but he delivered the concurring opinion in the Supreme Court's 2006 ruling against campaign spending limits. Right. So I just want to make sure that the next nominee would rule in favor of campaign spending limits, not against them. I'm with you. I think the evidence is in now. I mean, Breyer, everybody talks about Breyer like he was some kind of great liberal. Breyer is not a liberal. Breyer is a corporate Democrat. And you look at his decisions, and yeah, on a few social issues, he's been pretty good. But if you look at his decisions as they pertain to you know, the rights of labor, the rights of the average person versus giant corporations, he generally, not always, but generally tends to side with the corporate side of things. So, yeah. Yes, you, and of course. Go ahead. We need campaign spending limits because third parties cannot break into our political process if we're going to have uh, no campaign spending limits because then the only parties that get any real traction are ones with big money donors. That's right. And that's where we're at right now. And, and, and to, uh, you know, the, enti the entire Republican Party has been corrupted. Significant parts of the Democratic Party have been corrupted, and it's because they changed the rules of the game. I mean, if you were playing football and the rules of the game were whichever team gave the umpire, or the referees rather, excuse me, a $10,000 bribe could have an extra man on the field, and that was all perfectly legal because that was the rules of the game, wouldn't your team try to come up with ten grand and get an extra guy on the field? Yeah, you have to have a whole lot of advertising to get elected, and it doesn't happen cheap. Exactly, exactly. And that's the rules of the game now. Eugene, excellent point. Thank you very much. Maverick in Edmonds, Washington. Hey, Maverick, what's on your mind? Thanks for listening to KBCS. Yeah, uh, thank you, Tom. But yeah, your, your sentiments and mine are, are lined up as far as watching the overt and covert racism, the far-right Fox media network. It, and just listening to your opening today just made my eyes kind of well up a little bit because I was thinking that, you know, I probably won't live long enough to see the end of real racism in, in my country. I don't think any of us will. Yeah, I, I don't think so either. I, I, I wonder if there's a place. It goes too deep. 
I wonder if there is a country in the world where you could escape racism, even to a, a large extent. Yeah, I don't know of a one. I mean, this is deeply rooted, but it is possible to radically reduce the impact of racism, and it is possible to, to fix the damages, uh, to some extent, of racism. You know, obviously, yeah. you know, a lot of people's wounds are never going to fully heal. But every generation, I, particularly since the 50s, every generation of Americans, in my opinion, have gotten better with regard to this issue until Trump came along. And that well, just blew the whole thing, blew the lid off the whole thing. Well, thanks for the optimism. I make a concerted effort on a daily basis to uh, say a hearty and sincere hello to everybody that I meet that doesn't look like me. But I'll leave you with this little funny one, Tom. I hear the music. What about Anita Hill sitting across from Clarence Thomas on that Supreme Court over there? I think it would be great. And if she was in her 40s or 50s, I'd be at the front of the line saying, put her on the court. I'm with you, Maverick. Maverick, thank you very much for the call. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Okay, just to put a punctuation mark on all of this, Tucker Carlson said, and I quote, We have the latest census number, and we can promise you with dead certainty that Joe Biden's nominees look nothing like America, not even close. Really. One black woman out of nine on the, on the U.S. Supreme Court will cause the court to look nothing like it. Well, you'll have two black people on the court. I think that's about the proportion, isn't it? 17% or 18% of America, African-American. But, you know, it's just, they're just doubling down on the racism. The other thing, the other thing that I wanted to just bring up, and I'll, I'll do it fairly quickly, there's an interesting article over at Vice.com by uh, Anna Condrea Rado about isolation. What is isolation doing to us? And she writes about how, she starts out with the story of Katie in Birmingham, England, a 33-year-old university lecturer, you know, a professor, a teacher whose isolation was causing her to start having catastrophic thoughts, particularly around her health. It began to spiral. She got into depressive anxiety, constantly being alone. Scientists are now describing the last two years as the largest isolation study in history. Now, they have done isolation studies, in particular in preparation for and during astronaut missions to find out how isolation affects people. They've also done it for the people who live throughout the winter at the polar research stations where you're locked in for a few months because of the polar winter. And what they found is that in those cases, that isolation, whether it's in outer space or in the South Pole, causes depression, irritability, and sleep disruption in about 60% of people. They become slightly depressed. It downgrades their emotions. They feel like they have no energy. And, uh, you know, but those people all went under, underwent years of training they were prepared. We had no warning. Uh, this one professor points out, we're a social species. We've got what are called mirror neurons in our brain where, that literally react to other people's faces, other people's tone of voice, other people's gestures. So we, we experience their emotions as if they're our own emotions so that we can have a, an empathetic conversation. This uh, researcher says, part of our stress response is seeking social support. But we, you know, we haven't had that so much, and now one in six uh, adults across Britain is experiencing some form of depression. This isolation can also increase inflammation, which can increase things like dementia and cardiovascular disease and downgrade the immune system. Now, there are some differences. Uh, this one researcher uh, says that 
Uh, you could be self-isolating in a four-bedroom detached house with a garden, which wouldn't be so bad, or in a tiny one-bedroom uh, apartment at the top of a skyscraper, which could be really, really rough. She says the environmental influence would be very different and would impact differently on your health status. There is a flip side, though, to this, and that is that humans are incredibly robust. So this one researcher, uh, Robinson, says uh, there is, there's this idea that trauma will lead to major physical and mental impact, and for most people, that's just not true. You tend to find that 90% of people come through any traumatic event, it will leave a footprint on their soil, but they'll be able to cope, rationalize, readapt, and show resilience. Um, but the whole field of positive psychology, uh, Marty Seligman's uh, field, uh, suggests that actually you can have things like post-traumatic growth when people emerge and say things are better now than they were before. And they quote this one person, Junior. Uh, he says, it's changed me for the better. I've not been depressed or suicidal. I feel amazing now that he's kind of come out of pandemic isolation. This is in the UK. He says, I find more things to do now, not just watching TV and stuff. I'm going out in the garden with my dog. I'm reading. I've never read books in my life. I'm doing things I'd never normally do. And I actually like it. Oh, I'm sorry. This, this is not a guy who's getting back to normal. This is a guy who's still in isolation, but he's adapted to it. Forgive me. But the point is, it's kind of the old saying, you know, you can't control what happens to you, but you can, to a large extent, control how you react to it. This might be the old, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger thing. We'll be back with your calls after this. So what is all this isolation doing to us? Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. And on the line with us is uh, Ben Jealous, the president of People for the American Way, the People for the American Way Foundation, visiting scholar with the Annenberg School at Penn State University, former president of the NAACP, former candidate for governor of Maryland, PFAW.org is the website. Ben Jealous is the Twitter handle. Ben, welcome back to the program. Also, I should note you serve as professor of practice in the Africana Studies Department at the University of Pennsylvania, where you're teaching leadership. Wow, a lot, lot of, you are one busy guy, Ben. <laughs> thanks, thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts, the this, this Supreme Court nomination and the, all the rhetoric around it. You've got, you know, like Senator Roger Wicker coming out and going, uh, you know, uh, ranting about quota systems and stuff, and as if there was no such thing as, as black women who are as well qualified as white men. It seems to me like this is highlighting the, I want to call it anachronistic, but it's not yet. I mean, it's, it's still very, very real. But just this bizarre posture that so many of these, in particular white men in politics, are taking, but, but also, you know, that we as a country have taken for some time. Um, in this context. What, what say you? What are your thoughts on this? Let's start with the history, right? Right. The, how is it that we've had 164 nominees to the Supreme Court since, ni- since 1789? Since 1789, right. and only six have been women, and only two have been black, and zero have been a black woman. Right. When you contrast that with the contributions that black women have made throughout that history, I mean... Harriet Tubman was the first American woman of any color to lead a U.S. military expedition. She did it on the Cumbie River in South Carolina during the Civil War. It was devastating. Um, it's always been clear that there were black women who were geniuses among us, who were courageous, who were making great contributions to this country. And for more than a century, we've had black women lawyers uh, who have been, you know, Constance Baker, you know, Constance Baker Motley, for instance, and just incredible contributors to our democracy. And yet... None of the Supreme Court. Now, one of the barriers, honestly, is that a lot of those women um, have been civil rights lawyers. They've been defense attorneys. And for decades now, we have not generally been putting them on the court. But Joe Biden has changed that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've seen, you know, I think, probably the biggest sort of quiet progressive victory of his administration has been the speed with which he has put great servants of the people on the Supreme Court. So, excuse me, the great servants of people in the, in the federal courts, in the federal courts. And now here comes his first Supreme Court opportunity, and he is committed to nominating a black woman. The good news is there are legions of not just qualified but overqualified black women uh, who, again, have a track record like many of Biden's nominees in the last uh, several months uh, of serving the people directly as a defense lawyer, as a civil rights lawyer before they went to, uh, to the bench. So I'm kind of grasping at how to, 
how to articulate this. It seems to me like, you know, I, I'm an old guy, and I, I remember how America was in the 50s and 60s. I grew up in the 50s and 60s. And, and, and how, you know, how very, very different things are now from then. And it's, it's easy to, you know, in, in, in a time when black people are still being killed by police, you know, with impunity, and, and uh, you know, you've got openly racist politicians running around, uh, open, basically controlling the Republican Party. It's, it's easy to despair, but it seems to me like we have gone a long way toward creating a, a pluralistic, multiracial, um, egalitarian society. Uh, does your analysis comport with mine, Ben? Yeah, you know, I, um, I'm actually very optimistic about where our country's ultimately headed, keyword ultimately. You know, the, let us never forget how the dawn arrives. You know, the dawn arrives out of a moment of utter darkness. And the reality is that if you, know, if you were up on the balcony of history, my grandmother is the granddaughter of slaves, 105, so very sharp. And that's kind of where she lives. You can see basically 100 years, uh, 200 years behind her, and I'd say have, has a better view of the future, I think, than most. Right. Uh, having both witnessed so much history and inherited stories firsthand from her grandparents who were born into slavery. You know, if you're up on the balcony of history right now, you'd say, well, wait a second. If our country is just 25 years away from entering, ending more than four centuries of white supremacy as the numeric basis for our democracy, well, what would you expect to have? You would expect, you know, on the one hand, a lot of white people like you, like my dad, would be like, hooray, finally our people got to learn how to get along with somebody else, right? They're going to have to at least, you know, uh, make a partnership with one other group demographically in order to succeed democratically. Wonderful. But a lot of white folks would be scared by change. We want to hold on to the old way and would be willing to do anything to do that. And that, of course, is what's happening with these voter suppression bills. Right. This is a set of scared people trying to hold on to their old majority by any means necessary, including subverting the constitutional rights of their neighbors. And so the good news is that, in a way, they're recognizing that the world is changing in a way that they can't, you know, that, that they won't be able to always control. And so when you see them reach for the most desperate measures, it means that they ultimately are confirming what we know to be true, which is we're going to move beyond white supremacy as a numeric basis for our democracy. The only question is whether it's sooner or later. And how as well, And although I, I, I think that the how is laid out. You know, we had an understanding of, we began in the 1950s and 60s, just to, to establish a metaphor here. In the 50s and 60s, we discovered the human immune system, you know, the details of it and how it works. And the 60s and 70s, actually, a huge time of discovery around that. And because we had just come off World War II and we were in the Cold War, we used these war metaphors to describe the immune system, you know, the killer T cells and stuff like that. Then we discovered that the immune system, and then, and then we discovered that the immune system didn't act like, uh, you know, an army at war, it very much did not act like that. And so the metaphor in the 80s and 90s to describe the immune system became, it's looking for self and not self. In other words, that's how it's differentiating. And then we realized that more than half the cells in the human body are not even human cells. And so now the metaphor that scientists use to describe the immune system is safe and not safe. In other words, that's what it's always looking for. And it seems to me like we've gone through a similar progression in, with regard to race relations in this country that, you know, from basically, uh, you know, 200 and some odd years of actual legal apartheid, um, you know, war basically between between races, or at least a, a legal and, and gun enforced division, to um, uh, this self or not self. You know, uh, uh, hey, you know, we're different from each other. Do we stay together? Do we work together? Do we live together or not? You know, how do how do we work this stuff out? To a notion that we can't have a safe society if we'd all friggin' learn to live together, and. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on that metaphor, and if, if you think that, that's, that that kind of evolution of understanding is, is parallel to how American society is viewing race, where are we at in, in the process of getting to the point where, uh, you know, across the racial spectrum and across the political spectrum, there's a consensus that safety for our society is the most important thing, that, that we do, that we must learn to live together. Yes. You know, I... I think that we're getting there. I mean, I think that we're getting there um, 
in a lot of ways for a lot of reasons. I mean, part of it is that, you know, love really does know no bounds of color, and young people across the country, across the political spectrum, continue to intermarry at increasing rates. Right. I live in Trump country in Maryland, and at our local YMCA, like, half the old guys, it seems, in the, in the Trump hats have black grandchildren, you know, wow. running, around the, running around the YMCA pool, you know, football players and cheerleaders and all that. The, um, so that, that's just kind of happened. I think the, the other thing, though, is that politics is a lot like physics. Something in motion tends to return to its original state. Race relations, of course, always in motion. What we forget as Americans is the original state. The reality is that the American experiment existed for a century before modern notions of race, modern notions of race being cruel and backwards, but you know, more, more recently created. Right. Um, you know, prior to that, race was really understood to be you know, what we would call nationality now. You know, we Scots are a mighty race. We Irish are a mighty race. And African slaves were seen as just that, as slaves from nations in Africa, Nations, by the way, that were chosen for different for for different skill sets, and so the um, the reality is that if you look at the first American rebellions, they were not slave rebellions; they were colonial rebellions, and they were typically African slaves again who were seen seen as humans being from different nations, and European indentured serv- servants who were seen as humans being from different nations. The, there was no penalty, no special penalty back then for, say, what we'd now call a black man or black woman having a baby. Uh, you know, the, in the early days of the Virginia colony, the penalty for premarital sex in a racial couple was the same as it was for any other couple. Right. This is all like pre-1620, 1630, when they started promulgating those racial laws in Virginia, correct? Yeah, yeah this, is, no, this is all like pre-17, like mid-1700s. Oh, okay. Like mid-1700s, yeah, like mid-1700s. And so the, um, yeah, so I think, you know, that's where, you know, like, we have to understand that, that fundamentally there is a gravity to the human condition that pulls us back towards um, understanding that we have more in common than we don't, and that this, you know, this, it, that race is ultimately a lie based on a lie, that racism is a lie. So, so are you suggesting, Ben, and, and just a heads up, we've got about 50 seconds before we're going to hit a hard break I can't control. Um, are you suggesting that th- this racial construct that was artificially put together by the Virginia, by the Virginia back in the day could evaporate? That, that, that we're, you know, going back to the original state where different people, people are seen as, you know, from a place rather than as of, of race? Yeah, I think that we are. I think that things like DNA uh, will accelerate us back towards that. You know, when I was born, uh, what we knew about our families that we were black. What did black mean? It meant that you were at least one thirty-second of African descent in the right. Virginia context. Um, you know, now we know that my grandfather's side, we primarily come from Sierra Leone, and my grandmother's side, we originally came from Madagascar. You know, like there is a there is a complexity. There is a race used to be a fog. Similarly, with, I grew up with white people who were just white. They now know that they're Irish and German, yeah. right? But somewhere along the line, they had forgotten that. So yes, I do think we'll get back to a place, you know, where kind stuff. Of what really matters is more important and old, blunt definitions of race are less. Brilliant. Ben, it's always so thought-provoking speaking with you. Thank you so much for dropping by today. Uh, appreciate you, brother. Back Thanks. at you. Thank you. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Tom Harmon here with you. Those of you who have been listening to this program for, you know, 19, 19 years we've been doing it, will recall back when uh, the Department of Homeland Security was be- first being put together, I was raising, both in writing and, and on the air, questions about the word homeland. It just chilled me. I mean, we're all used to it now after 20 years or almost, but being the old fart here, I guess. I don't remember when this happened because I was not alive, but this, this was in, uh, in 1937. But there was, there was a time in Germany where, you know, it used, to, it used to be German politicians always referred to Germany as the fatherland, der, der Vaterland. And um, Rudolf Hess, 
introducing Adolf Hitler at the Nuremberg rally changed that. And it was a significant change. And later, uh, actually, I believe William Shearer writes about it in Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. They, they took this word from the Zionist movement at the time, homeland. You know, the Jews were trying to have a homeland in, in you know, what is now Israel. And Rudolf Hess introduced Adolf Hitler by saying, thanks to the Fuhrer, we now have a homeland. Heimat is the German word for homeland. We now have a homeland here in Germany, a homeland for alles Deutsche in der ganze Welt, all of the Germans in the entire world. Here it is, right here. Dank Ihrer Führung wird Deutschland sein Ziel erreichen, Heimat zu sein für alle Deutschen der Welt. That was that, but we got the Department of Homeland Security anyway, and now strange stuff going on there, and, and I wanted to get into this. Andrea Mazzarino is with us, a co-founder of Brown University's Costs of War Project, activist and social worker interested in the health impacts of war, co-editor of War and Health, the medical consequences of the war, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and a contributor at Tom Dispatch. Most recently, the author of a piece called, titled Violent Extremism at the DHS, How Our Second Pentagon, that would be the DHS, failed to avert the most threatening attack on U.S. democracy in centuries. Andrea, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. You quoted, actually, Masha Gessen in your article pointing out that homeland was from the start uh, an anxious, combative word and all these sort of things. I don't know if you could hear the clip of Rudolf Hess, but, you know, this is, yes. it, has a, it has a painful history. How is it going with the Department of Homeland Security and what changes were made during the Trump time that are carrying over to, to, to now? With the Homeland, Department of Homeland Security, the focus continues to be on the threat of violent jihadist groups abroad, uh, such as ISIS, for example, and those inspired by them at home, even though relative to the threat posed by domestic terrorists, homegrown extremists, like, for example, the Proud Boys, um, those threats have increased dramatically in the past four-plus years. So the Department of Homeland Security has played a marginal role in thwarting terrorism, but it's focused primarily on averting attacks by groups that no longer pose the most significant threat to the United States. It's actually attacks such as that which happened on January 6th that posed the greatest threat to our security and, of course, to our democracy. And it's FBI and the Joint Terrorism Task Forces that have stopped the most attacks uh, planned during the past two years um, by focusing on those groups. Rather than DHS itself, although these are both within the umbrella of DHS, aren't they? They are within the umbrella of DHS. I think there's been a conscious um, decision to look the other way. Um, and when you asked about changes that occurred during the Trump administration, I think that one thing that happened is that DHS was used to thwart Americans' exercise of civil, civil liberties, such as the protests that took place after the killing of George Floyd in Portland, Oregon. Um, DHS officers were deployed there um, during the summer of 2020, uh, and there are substantiated reports um, that the DHS um, director later affirmed of officers in unmarked vehicles detaining protesters uh, without charge. Oh, they were so, snatching them off the streets here. I, I'm, I'm in yeah, Portland. Yeah, snatching them off the streets. <laughs> I mean, literally yeah. just grabbing people and throwing them in vans, and people had no idea. Why'd you grab me? What's going on? And zoom, exactly. and you got a bag over your head and zip ties on your ankle, on your wrists. And these were people who had no training or, or formal authorization to be doing that, of course, or right. even to be there in the first place. Right, right. So that's, that's a change, and I don't think it was a policy change. Chillingly, it was in terms of the the in terms of practice that wasn't even really documented initially until organizations like the ACLU forced it has, DHS to come forward. It, it has always struck me that um, the 9/11 was kind of a one-off. 
uh, you know, I mean, it was huge. It was dramatic. It was uh, it killed 3,000 people. It was, you know, visible from outer space. Uh, but if bin Laden had not pulled that off, it seems to me that we would be, you know, looking back over the last 20, 25 years, really, uh, thir maybe 30 years that we've had al-Qaeda activity. There was al-Qaeda attacks on the United States or interests of the United States, the USS Cole, you know, stuff like that back in the 90s, right. that we would be looking back at this stuff as, well, you know, they tried their best, but uh, they didn't even get, you know, like, you know, the the Red Brigades or the IRA in Ireland or something like that. I mean, it never even reached anything close right. to that. But we have had consistently, since Tim McVeigh read the Turner Diaries back in the day, you know, uh, this, this novel that is embraced by all these right-wing militias where, the, where the, 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 the protagonist of the novel blows up the federal building in Oklahoma City, the federal government responds by going door to door to take away people's guns, all the white, you know, Christian gun owners rise up and kill all the black people and Jews. And in the end of the book, the, the white Christian guy is standing on the hill holding his gun saying, I saved America. You know, Tim McVeigh thought he was going to start a revolution. I mean, he, he literally believed this. And, and there are people who are still there. I mean, that, that was January 6th. That was the revolution. That was and, January 6th. And, and so there's this straight line. We're seeing this inside the United States. And this is, you know, with the single exception of 9-11, it seems to like there's no comparison between right-wing violence and terrorism in the United States and the death of, of hundreds of people, certainly over the years, maybe thousands. Um, if you include things like the Las Vegas shooter, who was, you know, a right winger and said he was motivated by that, the guy who went down to down to El Paso and sh to shoot up Hispanic people. Sandy Hook. Yeah, I mean, we've got we've got serious issues, and the DHS is not addressing them. Is this structural? No. Is this cultural? Is the I mean, why is this going on within the DHS? I think that it's bigger than the DHS. I think it's cultural. But the DHS is relevant because it was created at a time when Congress was writing a blank check for just about anything that the Bush administration wanted to do. And then so on, it's subsequent administrations, in order to combat the threat of terrorism sensibly from without, from the Middle East. Mm -hmm. um, and that created a kind of Frankenstein that exists today I mean, the structure is set up of an organization that can do as it pleases, despite the fact that the original threat um, posed by Osama bin Laden um, is, is gone. Mm -hmm. It's not to say that extremism, jihadist extremism is not a problem, but the bigger problem um, is homegrown extremism, right. as we saw on January 6th. And now what you have is a redundant organization that is not as effective as what we had prior to that. Um, it's bloated bureaucratically, so there's a lot of inertia there. It's not going anywhere, and it can do what it wants in, to some extent yes. um, because um, the, it was founded on the idea that there are invisible threats that are constantly morphing in shape. Um, so when you have a definition like that, um, to this, uh, of a threat to our homeland, that is an emotionally laden mission. It's not a concrete one, and it can be interpreted in any way leaders want. It's almost like a religion, you know. It's it's the invisible gods told us to do this or that, and and well, how do you know? Well, I know because he told me. He didn't tell you, so we've got an <laughs> invisible threat. Well, how do you know? Well, I, you know, we're pretty sure of it. Or we've got this example here. So, is there any is there any movement within the department to reform it? or within Congress to either reform it or break it up back to its original disparate organizations? Not that I am aware of, Tom. Wow, there's not even, even the smallest, I, you know, I'm, I, I, even on the fringes, there's, you know, the... Well, I think the fringes would be, would be the civil society right. sector, like ACLU and Anti-Defamation League, and they are they are well aware of where the true threats lie. So, right. so is the Cost of War Project, the organization of which I'm a part, Brown University. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're they're focused on where the threat of violence lies, and they're they're advocating hard for changes in the way our government approaches right. um, 
violence, including by looking at the ways in which armed conflict abroad influences our culture. We're, we're outwardly focused on the Middle East and Africa, and that takes away funding and attention from where it should be, which is on uh, security um, at home right. and um, providing social services at home that would ameliorate the biggest problems American state, right. American state. Domestic like extremism. Pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. Andrea Mazzarino, uh, brilliant. Uh, the the the, uh, the articles, I found it on Alternate. It's all over the Internet. Violent extremism at the DHS, how our second Pentagon failed to avert the most threatening attack on U.S. democracy in centuries. Andrea, thanks for dropping by. Great talking with you. Thanks very much, Tom. My pleasure. Special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercote, Patrick White, Geraldine Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Sprouse, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabberwocky, Jay LeBlanc, Connor Arroyo, and Carne Verde. All the folks who work on this program. And thank you to you for uh, participating with our program and spreading the good word and supporting our sponsors and our stations. Get out there, get active, tag your it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.